Hello and welcome to Hallelujah Monkeys for August 28th. My name is Dylan Flynn. My name is Trevor Ickrath. Welcome to the second part of the Hallelujah Monkeys end of the summer bananas blowout. This was a week where there were a lot of sad Gorillas fans and I wasn't one of them because I was like, ooh, I got a secret. I got a special episode of the podcast that right. I'm excited about. Hopefully this will help soothe all the pain everybody's feeling from not uh, getting that stuff we were promised this week. Yeah, if we can if we can pull a little bit of the of that of that misery out of your your gorilla's life then we've done our job that's our goal this week trevor that's what the show's all about so then let's not waste any time let's get right into the news let's talk about the news this might be the biggest news in the history of this show do you remember that remix that we already talked about the saturn's bars one with all of the jamaican rappers on it i remember every remix we've talked about perfectly of course well now that one is out on itunes trevor (laughs) Dylan, you you tell me that like I haven't already downloaded it and played it right, so right. many times by now. I my only regret is that it's only ninety nine cents. Like I wish that I could, I wish that I could drop a hundred dollars on this remix. You know, I actually created a couple additional iTunes accounts and took out a few more credit cards just to do that. The other news is G-Mixes. We have the fifth volume of G-Mixes. Now, I was also getting a little bit bored of this recurring news segment, but they kind of, they mix it up this week. Right, they started adhering to some themes or something? Yeah, here's how it works. 2D's uh, G-Mix is called the Carnival Edition. Okay, that checks out. That tracks. It was co-curated by Cadenza, the artist who made that remix we were just talking about. That's fun. That's fun. 2D slash Cadenza making a, making a, a, a little mixtape very 2D cool. 2D would listen to a work in the fair rides at his dad's. <laughs> right, exactly. Then you've got the Russell Kick Back and Relax Edition G-Mix. Okay, very chill. Russell's a chill guy. He does enjoy a nice little nap. He loves a nap, that's for sure. Isn't that funny that like the music video for this band that he's most active in, his subplot involves taking a nap? <laughs> Free Russell Hobbs. This is interesting. This is a little bit more out of left field, in my opinion. Um, Tell me what you think. Noodles is the new Jack Swing edition. Yeah, I don't really see where that's coming from. Where does that come from? I mean, I know she's a cosmopolitan gal, and she listens to a whole lot of different things. Is she? Do we know if she's a big Prince fan or not? I don't know. That's a good question. But there, let me tell you who's on that playlist because let's let's examine it and decide if it's noodly enough. Okay. Okay. Uh, we got Janet Jackson with Rhythm Nation. We've got uh, Hold On by En Vogue. We've got Poison by Belle DeVoe. These are great songs. I think these are great songs. Doesn't feel like yeah. It doesn't feel very noodly. I would even probably. I mean, obviously. I could see them on a Russell G mix. I could even probably sooner see them on a 2D G mix, to be honest. Yeah, like Poison, definitely. That would kind of, that's almost like the rap equivalent of like the Human League on some kind of weird level. And then, of course, Trevor, the final one is Murdoch's, and his is the Bath Edition. They're really, I don't like this. How, how do you feel about this? You don't like them leaning into the meme? No, how do you feel about that? I feel like sometimes it works for some artists, like Drake is allowed to lean into memes. Although, I don't know if he even does. You know, he kind of just sits back and lets it all happen and watches from the uh, the tower in Toronto, you know? They're they're leaning into it. I mean, like... Let me tell you the one time when it was perfect. In the in the motion capture YouTube interview, when he goes, the second I got into this, that bath, I thought, this is going to be a meme. <laughs> that was funny. 
I, I, I like pretty much everything that happened in those motion capture videos, so I'll give you that. That really was like a highlight of the phase, I feel like. It was really good. Yeah, I recently looked through a bunch of like highlights on YouTube and stuff. It was just, there's some wacky stuff going on there. Oh, I should tell you that each G-Mix also has an accompanying emoji before the title. <laughs> so, uh, Russell's kick back and relax. You've got the AOK fingers, obviously black skin. The Noodle New Jack Swing edition, you've got uh, the dancing lady with the red dress. Hey, let's, uh, let's, I, I hate for this kind of stuff to keep seeping into the podcast, but you know, the okay symbol with your fingers is also kind of like a white power thing, right? Do you think, I'm sure that was intentional, wasn't it? I mean, what's going on with this band? <laughs> the 2D carnival edition was a palm tree, um, which I think that's right. And then guess, what do you think the bath edition was? Was it like uh, the shower head or a bath or something? Yes, of course. Of course it was. Okay. Of course it was. Discussion question. Yeah, go for it. What do you think it might have sounded like if uh, Gorillaz had been commissioned to record an original song for the Emoji movie? Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to imagine that they would have like tossed the whole thing off to Twilight Tone, and he would have like really half-assed it, you know? Like, I could imagine it being, like, the dub-dumb of this phase, almost, where he just, like, took a few scraps from some sessions and put them together into something. It's weird, because We Got the Power is almost perfectly tooled for a kind of big, you know, animated children's film commercial Yeah, or could you imagine like them dancing to it in the credits at the end I mean, of the... I mean, we already got that video of all the toys dancing to it, right? Yeah. Very easy to imagine. Okay, this is the actual story, Trevor, the actual story of the week, and I, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Uh, last week, you'll remember, Trevor, I said, this... Next week, we're going to talk to the director of Bananas, and we're going to review a whole G-Side's worth of new Gorillaz music. It was going to be a big, super extravaganza, double-packed episode. It was, I was really hyped about it. I'm still really hyped, because that Carrie Levy interview is amazing. We'll get to it in a minute. But oh, yeah, like, absolutely. But, yeah, uh, no, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Nobody got their Super Deluxe Vinyls. What more? Some people got an email notification that they will be getting theirs on October 20th. Which is quite a ways from now. That's a two-month delay. That's a two-month delay. And you know what? Here's the thing. Here's the thing, Trevor. Delay all you want. Nothing, nothing good ever came out of releasing something too early. So take all the time you need. What bothers me is the lack of communication. Right. I mean... What, what the real shame is that girls have had such a perfect track record before of delivering on all of their promises. It's really <laughs> a shame to see this, like, this thing besmirch their perfect record. Well, perhaps, yeah, perhaps you have a point there. Do you remember the Stylo Car uh, controversy? I do. I can't remember how it was resolved. Did those ever end up coming out? No, they never ended up coming out. What Jesus, happened was they, they took orders for uh, a little toy car that looked like the Stylo Car, right? Mm-hmm. What, how this ended was Jamie Hewlett writing like a heartfelt email to everybody who bought one saying, when we started, we thought we had a licensing deal in place with GM that would let us do it. And then we didn't. And so we started making these things that we can't legally make. And we certainly can't send them to you. So here's a refund, everybody. We're sorry. God, phase three was a mess. It was a mess, wasn't it? Jeez. I don't think we need something heartfelt. But it would have been nice if everybody who's like on the Gorillas newsletter had gotten a mail out saying like, hey, sorry, our printer is being weird or whatever. Pushed it back two months. But yeah. no communication. That's obnoxious. Yeah. Hey, that brings us to another discussion question, though. 
are some of the gorilla's disappointments with a Z in recent memory? Well, let's get it out of the way right away. The Let's talk about Seaside. That's okay. got to be that number was, one. That was a big one. That's a full album's worth of gorilla's music that we have not and will probably never, never see. Never get. I know another big uh, gripe that I still see expressed within the uh, girls fan community is how um, inaccessible the Demon Days live shows were in uh, Phase 2. I know a lot of people were like looking forward to seeing that album performed live, and they're still like a little, like I don't want to say bitter, because it's, you know, they have a right to be kind of miffed that uh, they never did a proper tour for that album, and they only kind of did two installations. There's songs on that album, for example, Every Planet We Reach is Dead, that have still only been played in those two residencies. Yeah, that's kind of wild. Fingers crossed that on this, on this, uh, as this tour continues, we'll get some of those, those gems, you know. On a more personal note, I'm still kind of broken up. I wasn't able to make it to one of the spirit houses. Would you count this as a disappointment? The fact that there's no way to access the old Kong websites anymore? Is that, does that count as a disappointment? I would count that, yeah, because that's a lot of material that was like, especially the Plastic Beach site, too. That stuff is just gone. Especially, especially for those young Gorillaz fans who just have never seen that stuff, you know? Like, I guess you have the app this time around, but really that is nowhere close to the scale they used to do things on. Uh, we've had hologram tours promised to us over the years that never materialized. We had a Pharrell collaboration that we've seen neither hide nor hair, nor hair of. Uh, Phase Four Snoop Dogg is is missing in action. Basically, uh, this band sucks. But uh, do you want to talk to uh, <laughs> some dude who made an entire movie about them? <laughs> Absolutely. Let's talk about this uh, ahead of time a little bit. Let's 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 give them a contextual bedrock. So, as we were getting into to talking about bananas on the show, I was like, we got to talk to Carrie. Carrie not only by all accounts seems to be a pleasant, open, fun guy, easy to talk to, but he's breathed the rarefied air of having been there for pretty much every moment of the the first half of this band's existence so he he's almost you might say uh the fourth gorilla absolutely the third, the third being our favorite son cass brown cass brown i would say i'd actually say that's that's the case because i would say that it would go the hierarchy would go like damon jamie uh then cass then carrie and then i would say like remy might be my next choice because he just kind of he's been ground four for so long you know yeah, I think so. He was kind of there at Grand Zero almost. Yeah, that's that's fair. You might think that that talking to a guy like Carrie Levy would be would be intimidating, but he was just immediately so sweet, so open and and funny and giving, and uh, we just love talking to him, and we can't wait for you guys to hear it. So let's not waste any time, right? Let's go talk to Carrie. Carrie, thank you so much for coming on Hallelujah Monkeys. This is a big deal for us and for the show. Yeah, great to have you on. Oh, thanks very much. Nice to be here. Nice to be chatting with you guys. We, uh, I, I watched Bananas again last night, Carrie, and I think it was the second or third time I've watched it this uh, year even. And this time I was like, okay, I'm going to come up with some good questions on this watch. And then I found myself getting totally sucked back into it. I took almost no notes. It, it hangs together so well. Like, not only just as a holy grail of or like a fan document, but it's just such an engrossing watch like on a movie level it is really kind of like a, a holy grail and very engrossing i mean i remember the first time i watched it i actually wasn't even i was going through a part of my life where i wasn't really super into gorillas and this was kind of almost what got me back into the band i was like wow i want to want to go check everything out that i just saw again first of all carrie and this is this is very important we should get it out of the way now i'm assuming 
because of your pedigree as a super fan that you have seen 2D's commercials with David Luiz for Chelsea football. Yeah, I have. I have. Um, yeah. You know, it's uh, it's thoroughly entertaining. Does it does it feel a little bit like when you have two different groups of friends meeting at a party? <laughs> like, is it is it stressful that way? Well, it's kind of strange because you know um, that that football world is usually so separate from every other sort of facet. So them getting that together, uh, yeah, it, it's it's quite incredible, really. Pitch pitch me. I'm a, I'm a classic, you know, brainy nerdy. Uh, Yankee, whose sports confused me. So pitch me why I should be a Chelsea fan, why why I should become a hooligan, and why Chelsea should be my team. Well, because the best people support them, and and also the color blue is so beautiful that we play in, um, and we're a damn fine football team. And uh, yeah, more than that, what more do you need to know? It's it's who we support. You know, I took. Damon down to his first ever game with Chelsea, and um, and you know it's stuck ever since. So, yeah. quality side, quality fans. What do you think, Trevor? Should we should we watch a Chelsea football game and come back on the show and report if we've become super fans? I think we might have to live comment on one for the podcast one day. <laughs> That's a great idea. Everybody is going to download that episode. That's a whole episode. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, I want to get into the making of bananas and your your experience with gorillas and all that good stuff, Carrie. Um, yeah, should we just uh, start at the beginning? Uh, Carrie, do you remember uh, what the first piece of footage you shot for gorillas was? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, the way it all started was um, Damon and Jamie lived together, and uh, they were sharing a flat, and I used to go around in the morning uh, with coffee and um, say good morning because they'd invariably uh, had a different lifestyle to me at the time. Um, I, I'd met my wife and was living there, and I'd pop round on the way to the gym in the morning where Damon and I would go uh, most mornings. And one day they just basically said, oh, we've had this idea of an animated cartoon band. And I said, you're nuts. It sounds great. And I said, why don't we just document it? Because if it's a disaster it'll be a very funny thing to see you two, you know, <laughs> activating something as a complete and utter disaster. Holy shit. Like, do you think you were seeing them the actual morning after the first gorillas conversation idea? Yeah. It's a historic moment. Yeah, absolutely. My other question is what did it smell like in that apartment? Were they being hygienic? Were they cleaning up? Were, were dishes stacking up to the ceiling? What was, what was going on? What was that living situation like? Actually, it was not as bad as one one would think it might have been or could have been. Uh, no, actually, they're, they're both both very much into cleanliness and things. So it it was, you know, yeah, it might have been a bit fusty first thing in the morning, but nothing uh, a bit of ventilation couldn't sort out. And um, yeah, you know, they, they've they've always been pretty organised in that way. Those two. So yeah, it it was not some post-apocalyptic flat where you could imagine cartoon characters growing out of the mold on the floor. It really wasn't like that. 
That's so crazy, though. Like, I'm wondering now if, like, I wonder if you take the Carrie Levy ingredient out of the Switches brew, like, if you hadn't been there to kind of egg those boys on and, and point a camera at their face, uh, like, if they would have had enough momentum to keep working on this after coming up with the initial idea, like, you you could be indirectly responsible for all of this. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, that, that, that's kind of, yeah, Gorillas really was my idea. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, if you had said no, they probably just scrapped the whole thing then and there. That's it. That's all I have to say. I'll see you soon. Bye. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I cannot take any credit for it. Um, although it was quite funny, further down the line on tour, you know, especially on the first American tour, when we used to do press with, um, you know, Dan the Automator then, um, when everyone got bored, everyone would pretend they were someone else. So at, at one point, Jamie was saying he was Dan the Automator. Dan was saying he was Damon. And, and nobody ever worked it out. And it was really funny. And at one point, Dan and, and Jamie did an interview, and they're being particularly difficult that day. And they said, we've no idea why you're talking to me. Kerry wrote all the songs. which <laughs> And it was just brilliantly confusing for everything. And, you know, Damon would never have done gone that far. Um, but it, it was kind of funny. But um, but going back to the very beginning, that both those guys, you know, I knew them before Gorillaz and Damon. I'd known for, for years and years since he first signed his publishing deal with MCA for, for Blur. Um, and I met them on the night they signed their deal. So, you know, both of them have always had that ability to get stuck into a project and make things work. And, um, you know, gorillas, yeah, look, I was in the right place to egg them on and say, yeah, and what have you. But they, they were, once they got the idea, they were, they were all guns blazing on it. And, um, they, they set out to, to make it what it is, you know, and, um, made it a really interesting project and a great success. I wonder, do you, do you, if you had to guess, do you know what the actual like first second of footage you shot of the project was? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, the the first thing because Jamie then went off and just started doing. The first thing I shot was going into his studio and he's showing me the drawings, um, the first drawings. This would have been when it was uh, like a trio and the monkeys in the band and Paula Crackers in the band. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, um, the the those first two uh, images of the band when Paula was in, uh, they were there. But it also done the first drawings of the band for real. You know, it it it's something that he worked really quickly on getting drawings done at the very beginning, um, and it evolved quite quickly. And you know, Paula went her way, as it were, and um, Gorillas ended up going their way. So yeah, that that was really. I think that was actually the first footage that day in in the in the um, in his studio talking about it, which is pretty much the front end of the film when we go back in time it is it is so surreal hearing somebody who was present at the at such an embryonic stage of the project just telling the history like directly to me these things are weird because you never think of things like that as historical um until you're a long way away from it and i guess as a filmmaker i think the greatest moments in film are when you see something that's happened years ago I mean, I love seeing current documentaries and what have you, but there becomes, once you get a bit of time passing, I think it becomes really interesting to to look back on it and you go, wow, okay, that really was a moment in time. And, and 
you know, so many documentaries get made where they're out with the band and it's like, you know, happening now. And then you see it, it's out on TV, reality bites, and it's over. We, we don't, we don't allow ourselves distance of time anymore. I think with, with, um, especially in music documentaries, you know, we don't, we don't see footage shot from years ago coming out in the same way you know that's a good point that's a good point yeah, yeah, yeah we were talking about it uh kind of on the show recently in a discussion of some of the dvds the bands uh the band released in the past like it's only been like um about 15 years since the band started but the way we've seen uh the way bands like have changed operating has been it's so significant for sure and and like a a good recent example of like a rock doc or, or a music doc that a lot of people cite as being like so bad it's good or something would be that Metallica one, some kind of monster. And part of what makes that, that documentary an interesting failure is that the people making it don't realize that the worst Metallica album is being made. So there's no context of time. Everyone's just in there in the moment talking about this, like it's going to be some great thing. Anyway, that's really interesting that, because I love that Metallica documentary for exactly those reasons. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of, it somehow helped it. Do you remember uh, when you first became aware that uh, what you were shooting was for a feature documentary? Yeah, when we finished. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you had to do something with all of it, right? Well, you know, yeah, but I mean, there's also the thing, because I shot it over seven years, you know, you kind of think, well, there's never going to be an end in sight. You know, the idea... One of the other things which not many people really know is that when we started doing it, um, we had this idea of just shooting everything from the neck down. So you never knew who was behind the whole project, Um, which, of course, uh, would never have worked. Oh, oh, what a nightmare that would have been. That would have been a total nightmare. That's a good question. Do you remember um, do you remember when the kind of like uh, possibility of keeping everybody's identity a secret kind of like went out the window. Yeah, pretty quickly. I mean, the one thing we didn't do because there were lots of people who came in to audition for part, you know, it was kind of like trying to work it out, I think, at the beginning. And people came in to to sing um, and be, say, 2D and what have you. And then it became apparent that actually that was not the way that it was going to work. I think, you know, Damon realised that actually he sings his songs that he writes himself really well and then worked out that actually the way to do it was with guests and getting them to come in to the fold. So, you know, we, we kind of realized or they realized, you know, after a certain amount of people have come in that actually that was the way to go. Well, you just say that again. So the idea that basically the way that Miho was sort of cast to play noodle on that first album, they actually auditioned, singers to come in and play 2d on the album how would that have worked well well it couldn't because once they started developing the idea more and more i think they realized that that was not the way to go i mean yeah you know you've got people playing the characters all the time but musician wise it became a different thing you know damon would be doing the vocals um i don't think i'm giving anything away there um (laughs) (laughs) wait wait, the guy from blur (laughs) but you know so it 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 sort of evolved all the time and you know damon and jamie were both you know excellent at managing things rather than starting out well this is how it's going to be it evolved and i think that's what makes gorillas so successful because yes there's a there is your band and your characters but you have this ever changing cast of people you know i mean got everyone is 
pretty much replaceable apart from Damon and Jamie, you know, um, including the filmmaker, you know, um, that's, that's kind of the nature of, of gorillas. It's, it's a roll call of people who come through and pass through for an amount of time and then move on. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's, that's been the really clever thing about it is that they've got interesting people into play all the time and continually evolve. So everything's fresh. There's no sort of, 15-year malaise or whatever because they've all got fed up with each other. It's a, it's an exciting sort of, you know, melting pot of people and ideas. And it seems like, yeah, like you couldn't get bored making a Gorillaz album because it's going to be a totally different experience every time. Yeah. Um, you, I think you mentioned in the Reddit AMA you did, Carrie, about uh, you pointed to the moment with Ibrahim Ferrer, when he showed up as being a really surreal moment for you as a documentarian with like his posse in tow. And I was wondering if you could, uh, if you could expand on that a little bit, like what you remember about that day and, and what that moment was like for you. Working with Ibrahim Ferrer was an extraordinary sort of moment. I mean, this is a legend as, as far as a lot of us are concerned. This is a man who, you know, who is one of the main figureheads of, of Cuban music. And ever since Ry Cooder's film, you know, and working and bringing them to the forefront, you know, they were one of the first real sort of crossovers for world music, I guess, in, in the Western world. It changed our view of things, I think. And, and you know, when you discovered the Buena Vista Social Club and their music and the joy in the music, but yet also what they'd all lived through and been through, you realised that, you know, you, you were sort of touching on something that was completely different to the world that we've been in. Okay, you know, Damon and I made a documentary when he went to Mali for the first time and worked with African musicians and what have you. And Damon's always had this ability to look beyond his compartmentalised structure that the world would like to place him in, especially at the time of Blur. You know, when he started working with African musicians, they went, oh, some musicians should just stay where they are and they, you know, they shouldn't be interfering in, in these kind of things. And actually, that's, that's not right. You know, he of his generation is the only one who went out and started exploring beyond the boundaries of his own indie pop, whatever you want to call it, uh, musical uh, world, and, and made some amazing discoveries. And this is, Gorillaz now allowed him that ability, not just to make a solo album or do this or do that, it allowed him to have a vehicle where he could go and explore other worlds. And when Ibrahim Ferrer and the Buena Vista Social Club, who we'd been to see the night before in Hyde Park, if I remember right, when they all turned, you know, it, it wasn't the whole Buena Vistas, but, you know, Ibrahim and, and a few of the guys and all his family and everything walked into, right. into the studio door. It was, it was just wonderful because he was, he was just so engaging, um, spoke no English. Uh, Damon didn't really speak Spanish at the time. Um, and yet, the connection happened with music, with lots of... You, you see it in the film where Damon's pointing up to the sky, then down low, and they were getting this... Everything was happened with pointing. It was brilliant. And a communication through music. And, and for me, what was incredible was when we were filming people in the studio, it was, it was really uh, an interesting thing for me because as a documentary maker, you want to get everything as you can and make it real. I don't like to recreate anything. And you never know how people are going to react to you. 
when you're there. They've met you for two seconds. I, I shot everything on a very small Sony um, P7 or whatever it is, tiny little handheld thing, but with a decent mic attached to it um, because people didn't take me seriously. Um, and I thought, you know, just use a, a camcorder, then that takes away the need for film crew and what have you and right. lets you get in close. And I just walked into the vocal booth with with Ibrahim and just hoped it was going to be all right. And Damon was pretty good because he always introduced me to people and said, if he's a pain in the ass, just throw him out. Or, you know, if he gets in the way, just push him out of the way, whatever. He was, he was very good because he'd, he'd always intro me and would set it up for me. Um, so going into the vocal booth and this vocal booth with Ibrahim, I have to say the camera looks really close to Ibrahim. And that's because it is. I'm about a foot and a half away from him. It's very intimate. Yeah, I mean, to your testament as a filmmaker, I think how struck you were by this uh, session really comes through in the film. I mean, it's it's presented with such like a kind of uh, like an air of reverence. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, but it's it's also wonderment as well. You know, I mean, he he sat there and he sang everything, and he didn't worry about it in the slightest you know there was a lot of corrections of of ideas and thoughts and and how it would work out um and he was just fantastic and there's very few people that you you can be a foot and a half away from and listen to them create what they do in front of you and he was one of them the other the other one I ended up in a situation like that with were on another project was actually Tom Jones in L.A. I mean, he, he doesn't even need a microphone. He's in so loud. Oh, my <laughs> God. I, I mean, he nearly bust my head open with the way he sang. <laughs> and, and that was with a, for a charity project. And he was doing a version of Gimme Shelter by the Stones with, I don't know if you remember, one of the world's worst <laughs> rock bands. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> And that was uh, with New Model Army. I don't know if you remember them. Was that a moment where you had to, like, step aside yourself and just say, Tom Jones is screaming rape murder at me right now? Absolutely. You know, I mean, there's no one better to do it. And he was he was fantastic. But really, again, it was a tiny vocal booth, and I was a foot and a half away from him. And it was amazing. Yeah. And it was that kind of when you experience true sort of moments of of vocal agility vocal skill vocal beauty you know um but with ibrahim it was something so pure and so heartfelt that you didn't even need to know what he was singing to understand it was something beautiful he was coming out with i think it's my favorite vocal performance of his on tape to be honest it's really powerful it is and you know i mean on Demon Days, um, when we went out on tour on Demon Days, uh, we ended the set with that um, every night. And it was amazing because we put the footage, that close-up footage of him on a screen above the stage. Yeah, I actually went to one of those shows, and when I uh, watched Bananas, I recognized it from the encore. It, there wasn't a dry eye in the house because you knew that what was filmed wasn't him just miming. It was the actual take that's on on the record so it it did something that connected really personally because it was real it, it wasn't just a video that was him singing he was coming to life again through through that vocal and and it it was it was an incredible day and you know he was a, a lovely man and just one of the greats and yeah it left a lasting impression i think it did for damon you know damon 
loves working with musicians and he appreciates what they do. And I think it meant an awful lot to him that day as well, because it, it just took everything to another place yet again, which is what he does all the time. Well, I think it was an elemental moment for the project because there are a lot of, of collaborators you can point to later on that kind of stem from that philosophy of like, we're not going to be bound by nationality or age or whatever when we're picking the people who work with us. And there's another moment uh, not too long after that in the in the documentary, Carrie, that I, I think it's a pretty important moment because it documents an artist who's no longer with us, uh, a proof from D12. And he just comes across as so fun and so charismatic, especially when he's like rattling off like super deep nerd trivia about this Del the Funky Homo sapien beat that he likes. And like that whole sequence is so interesting. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but the way we've always been told is that that was recorded the day after the September 11th attack. Is that true? Yeah, that's right. Um, we, well, ironically, we just came back on the. Eighth or ninth, um, seventh or eighth from New York, and we've been over there. And uh, the guys have been doing some interviews, and um, I think it was with Spin Magazine. And they said, "Where do you want to go? Do you want to go, you know, Empire State or Twin Towers, somewhere high or whatever?" I said, "Well, let's go." For me, visually, it'd be great to go to the Empire State, and that's why there's that shot of the Twin Towers in there because. That happened about 36 hours. That Whoa, shot. that's oh. crazy. I did not even think about that. There is, on the mix, there's a, a sound of an airplane just on the end of that footage, um, which right. a lot of people don't notice, but it, it's in there. And that's why, because there but for the grace of God, etc. you know, it was, a, it was a very strange moment. And we literally got back and then everything happened. And the idea had been to get together with them and... Um, they were stuck in in London, so it seemed like a, a perfect time to get together, and and they came over to the studio, and that was it. What's really interesting is I could have released an hour long documentary just with those guys alone. Proof and I got on really well, and it, there's a bit which I, I don't think made it or made it into any of the out of footage, but um, I'd love it to to. I loved it because it was a really funny thing because Proof and I got on really well and Damon, as usual, was checking that everything was okay and he came into the studio. But he said, look, if he's being a pain in the ass, you know, you just get rid of him. He, he said, it's okay. We go back. Me and Kerry are cool. We go way back like spinal cords. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love that, uh, you know, but it would have been vanity to put that in the film. He, re he really does come off as just a ray of sunshine. Like, it's so sad to have lost such a young and bright, talented dude like that. Yeah, you know, and, uh, and it's just so sad how it all ended up. But, you know, we met them a few times when we went over America and we'd go out for a drink with them and... Um, yeah, Proof and I just, just got on really, really well. And um, he always, <laughs> I'll never forget one night in New York, um, and he took a, a shining to the gorilla's laminates. And he's going, that's such a cool laminate. And he was wearing, you know, his diamond-encrusted D12 chain, which, you know. <laughs> and I said, well, look, I'll swap you um, my laminate for your D12 chain. And so he did. So for the rest of the night, I ended up... <laughs> I ended up with his D12 chain. Hey! Are there any pictures of this? No, there aren't. Ah, oh, son of a bitch. I was hoping you still had it and were wearing it right now. Yeah, it just, it was the time before anyone really, 
use mobile phones in the way we do. And, you know, it was really funny because as I went, he just went, yeah, just one thing. And he remembered to uh, do the swap back for the, the chain. But he was funny. They Bummer. were all funny. You know, they, they were really good guys. And um, he, he's he's sorely missed, I think. We were talking about 911, uh, which uh, I guess we, we should continue because we kind of see that as a moment of transition for kind of the identity of gorillas from this project uh, that was kind of intended to take down uh, like the manufactured pop industry to project that was kind of had a more... Uh, or had more global ambitions in mind. Uh, when did when did you become aware of that shift happening? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think necessarily it was a deliberate choice. I think it's musically. I think Damon just moves and he listens to music. He is aware of what's going on, and then you know things happen, and he makes things happen. I mean, that's a, the great thing about Damon is he makes things happen. You know, always. You know, and you, you can't predict what he's going to do next, you know, whether it's going off and writing an opera or this or that. That's what makes him, you know, I hate saying it in the earshot of him, but in a lot of ways, he's a polymath genius, you know, that he does have that ability to just find something and hit the moment just right. And that that's that's what he does, you know. I mean, he works so hard. He does. He works so incredibly hard, you know. I, if I'm honest, I, I don't know anyone who quite works in the same way as he does. You know, musically, he's always challenging himself. For you, there wasn't a moment where you were kind of like, wow, this this little cartoon band is certainly getting a bit more serious, a bit more socially focused. A little more political. I think 911 is an important moment because, you know, you get the, you know, we, all sorts of people got involved then, you know. Um, we had an Ud player. It, he got an Ud player in. Um, you know, Terry, of course, was on the track. And, you know, he does talk at, at the time, you know, about how it's more and more important to involve these other cultures within our culture. So right. I don't think that moment changed him, but it was a moment that he saw the possibility of. And it's the moment that. It just happened like that, you know. But I think he could have gone down that path quite happily without the tragic events of 9-11, you know. I mean, it would just happen to be, there we are, 24 hours later, stuck in a studio with some American rappers and, you know, Terry Hall and an Ud player. That's just what happens when you put things out there. Was it surreal to be in a creative headspace the day after such a sort of international moment of panic and fear well it was odd because you never really understand what's going on um you know and maybe reporting has changed in a certain way that today it might have been more terrifying because let's not forget that the media now try and terrify everybody to within an inch of their life more and more every day right you know i remember when that happening it was just oh my god what's happened but because it was the first sort of you know global terror attack, I guess. Um, I think we viewed it slightly differently. I mean, you know, I was meant to be going to Spain with my wife that day, but because um, the guys were still over, D12 were still here, um, we decided that we'd do the studio thing. I actually took my wife to Heathrow that morning uh, and she flew down to Spain. That morning? Yeah, that morning, because nobody knew what to do in those first 12 hours. That's so crazy. 
we were watching it and then going, well, and she said, what should I do? I said, get the flight. I would have thought there's no safer time to fly than right now in a weird kind of way. I mean, we would be in lockdown within 20 minutes of that happening now a days. Then you got down to Heathrow. People were just wandering around in a daze because nobody had experienced this. So nobody knew what the rules were. Right. So she flew off to Spain and then the shutdown happened. She was about the only flight that took off. And she still says, I can't believe you sent me up in the air on that day. You know, <laughs> I said, you know, it, it, okay, it's crazy when you look back on it now, but I couldn't, I couldn't get a flight out for another week or so. You know, it was, it was a very strange time, but you know, this is all learning, but you know, it's also been used by those that, that want to be a controlling device over most of us anyway now. You know, everything is in, you know, lieu of terror or terrorist attacks. And that, that kind of scares me now that we use that as the fallback routine for controlling the masses, as it were. Speaking uh, more to that transition, uh, kind of uh, from Gorillaz phase to phase, do you remember how and when you found out that there would actually be a second Gorillaz album? Again, I mean, it was pretty much there was a hiatus and Damon said, yeah, I'm, I'm getting on with it. And I was pretty busy at the time um, and sort of kept my eye on it. And then sort of Della Soul appeared. And yeah, I mean, we decided to change the way it was filmed as well a little bit because we, we everything had been so studio based and I was getting really worried about the amount of studio footage that we were getting. But we did get some. I mean, I got a lot with with people like Sean Ryder and what have you, but um, that became difficult to use, shall we say. Um, and uh, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're not skating past that. I have to know. I have to know what you know about Sean Ryder in the studio for Dare. Cause I mean, that's, it's, it, it, it's lore even within the, yeah, it is lore that he came up with the, that they changed the song from uh, it's there to dare just because of the way he was pronouncing it and saying like, it's coming up in his headphones as the volume raised. Which I got to say, that sounds like such a line of bullshit to me. I don't think that that's true. I need, I need you to weigh in on it's, this. Carry. It just sounds like a, cutesy story they made up it's kind of true though i mean i hate to say it i mean i've got the footage um but everything with sean is never quite as it seems and something happened with my camera i've got no sound on it but i feel i film with him um you know and he was great he just was who he was at the time and you know he really did he's saying there but it does come across as dare it's it's very it is very strange, but it is a cutesy story, but it really is kind of true. That's so crazy. It was funny because he threw everyone out of the studio. He wouldn't even let Damon in there. I was the only one. He said, oh, you can stay. It's all right. You can stay. <laughs> you were chosen. <laughs> and uh, so, but uh, but then it, it, it became a little difficult to, to use the footage for uh, one reason or another. Yeah, he just got on with it. And um, it... He's got a very strange accent, and it, it did go awry on him. Wait, now, now, for one reason or another, are you intimating that, that because of some of the chaos that is indivisible from Sean Ryder, towering celebutant figure, is there just something that you couldn't put out? No, I mean, it didn't, it didn't quite work. And Sean, I think, was also not particularly happy uh, the way he, he was at the time, you know. 
he was he was changing as it were so it, it was very raw the footage so we just decided that it would be better to use stuff from the live gigs for sean you know everyone gets their looking in the film and it's working out what bit suits them better nothing particularly untoward uh Sean just we just chose the live stuff. I know we're all over the place and jumping around, but I wanted to real quick going back to that transition phase. Carrie, was any part were were you surprised at all to know that there would be another Gorillaz album, or were you kind of expecting it? I think because the first album had been so successful and so different and so varied, but you know the the period that it lasted for was quite a long time. You know, and Damon was getting on with other things. Nothing was ever set in stone. It wasn't right. I must get back in the studio from what I can see. It really was. It came around that actually suddenly he decided to turn to that. And and that's pretty much how Damon is. You know, he gets on with various projects and sometimes there's a hiatus between them and sometimes there isn't. And I think um, that was that was very interesting, you know, when suddenly that was there and he moved it. Sometimes, if I remember rightly, Demon Days was, on the whole, recorded quite quickly. You know, once he gets his songs together, he goes in and he works really hard, you know, nine to five, as they say, which is pretty true. Uh, And he just treats it like a job once he's got his creative thinking cap on. In the actual hiatus itself, uh, I know we know just from interviews and whatnot that Jamie and Damon and, and Cass Brown were working on a, a film, a screenplay uh, called Celebrity Harvest. Were, but you were you involved with filming anything for that, or were you not filming at all during the hiatus? I filmed a couple of very boring meetings about it. And <laughs> there's a lot of stuff I filmed, and you know, it it never makes a cut or gets near because meetings are boring. You film these things just in case something interesting comes out of it, and it never did. It's kind of like one of those things. I hate meetings and I hate doing talking head interviews. I like something to be happening. You know, I I think, I think that's what makes bananas work is that it's all about process, but you're witnessing process as it happens. And I think that's what makes it slightly different. There's no sort of, you know, sit down and chat to somebody after the event and go, Oh, do you remember when? I also think what makes it different is that, some somebody once said to me, you know, everything seems though you're slightly the camera's slightly tilting up, and I said, well, that's because I'm so short, so it gives a childlike perspective on the world. So <laughs> that's great. We kind of feel like you, you're kind of with adults, as it were. Which you know, I'm not saying any of them are, but you know, it's uh, I, I think the the childlike perspective helps it. Yeah, hiatus, it happened. And then suddenly they were flying, you know. I, I just love the day Dennis Hopper comes in, you know. I mean, that, that, that's another one of those special days when you realise things have gone to somewhere you never expected they would go to. And he was great. He was fantastic. And I, I love that whole thing when Damon's talking to him because everyone's in awe. There's Dennis Hopper, you know, who's, who's been there, done that, you know, everything he cared to think of probably the most rock and roll person you, you will ever meet. And yet he was so unrock and roll. He was just charming. He was nice asking for instruction. And, and I love it when Damon, when he says, how do you want me to do it? And Damon just says, well, you know, like Dennis Hopper. And he just goes, yeah, right. Okay. And that's it. Off he goes. <laughs> that's great. You know? So yeah, I, I, I love, I love that, that, that day, that and Ibrahim, they were, they were the two, 
special days for being in a studio with somebody and D12 and De La Soul. And actually, they were all pretty special. Pretty special. They're a pretty special band. Yeah, absolutely. So, Carrie, you said you kind of took a different approach to uh, filming once uh, the Demon Days phase kind of kicked in. And you can tell that there's like noticeably less studio footage. But do you remember how watching Damon work on creating Demon Days was different than watching him work on the first album? No, not really. And again, I gave him, because I was off, I missed quite a lot of the early stuff in the studio. So, but when I got into the, the later stuff, you know, he was still doing what he does. He was still working it, being very organized at trying to find, you know, how to put a track together. And and I don't think he really changes the way he works very often. He just gets his ideas. And half the time, you know, you see him in the film where he's going around banging stuff, hitting stuff, and all of it's just trying to get sound into him so he can start developing. And, and and that's what he does, you know. I mean, he does an awful lot, you know, now I know he does a lot on his iPad and things and, and various other ways, you know, but he's just always looking to, to work out the next song, really. I love that moment when he runs off because he hasn't finished the lyric for El Manana yet. Uh and then he comes back with it. And in the movie, you get the feeling that it didn't take him too long <laughs> to get everything down. Do you happen to remember in real time how long it took after Damon walked out of the studio before he came back in with the lyric sheet? I can't actually, to be uh, to be honest. No, I don't think it was too long at all. You know, but it's the one thing I, I think he always hates doing, you know, is getting on with the lyrics. You know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff where... He puts down guide vocals and it's just sounds and shapes of words. And sure. Some of those even see release eventually, you know, especially on the, the B side compilation type things. You hear some of those first draft Damon lyric, uh, attempts, you know, he hates sitting down and doing it, but he writes really good lyrics. It's really strange. You know, um, that when he, when push comes to shove, he goes and gets it done. But from what I can see, and a lot of the time, it's not the first thing that happens. It seems to be the, the, the tune, the melody, whatever, you know, that gets done first. A lot of collaborators with the band, Carrie, will describe a moment when uh, Damon kind of briefs them about the song they're about to work on, where he'll say, okay, so this song is kind of about this, and and this is what we're going for, and he'll give them some direction before they start their work on it. Did you ever capture any moments like that, and, and does any of that stick out in your head as far as... Oh, I don't know, De La Soul or, or anybody uh, in studio? Yeah, you mentioned the Dennis Hopper one. Dennis was different because it was spoken word, so it was still under his remit, as it were, and, and he had written words for that. Um, everyone else, it's it's a blank canvas. He likes to play people the tunes or whatever, um, and then D12 talked on 911 about the the drum sound and things. But on the whole, most people, from what I can see, that came in he'd play them something and say look you know whatever you want to do and if they came up i think with a, with a, a vocal that meant he had to cut the track up he'd do that but on the whole very little guidance as in you know i want you to sing it like this or i want you to sing about this or you know but not a, not not that kind of impressionistic uh this is a song that's about this kind of thing stuff no right okay one of mine dylan's uh both of our one of our favorite scenes takes place uh backstage at harlem uh during the rehearsals for those demon days live shows 
uh, in, it involves Damon kind of having to defend the lyrics of Dirty Harry to kind of an upset teacher who had an issue with the lyrics. Our opinion is that the lyric uh, is indeed to keep myself from harm. And Damon is just trying to kind of say anything he can to get her off uh, his back with that to keep myself among talk. Uh, what's your opinion about the from harm versus among? And, you know, really this moment in general, because it is a much talked about one in the fandom. I, th- I think he's right. Um, we, I remember at the time, we, <laughs> you don't even see it, but the um, the lyrics were on the tour manager's computer and we ended up printing them off to show them, if I remember rightly. I think in the documentary, she, she holds up a lyric sheet of her own and shows that hers says... And it hadn't come from the right person. We believe, and if I remember rightly, again, that they had been transcribed by someone other than somebody from the actual band and taken it from actual lyrics. So as far as I'm, I I can't swear 100%, but that's how I, I do vaguely remember it. What I loved was the fact that, you know, he's surrounded and having to stand his ground. And for him, he totally believed what what he was saying um the paperwork that came along then later seemed to back everything up that he was saying and it was kind of a it was a really difficult situation because he was looking forward to a really nice morning just working with the choir and had no idea he was going to walk into that kind of shitstorm. i refuse to believe it it's a cover-up it's a project-wide cover-up it is absolutely from harm. It really does sound like at least the kids. I don't know about Damon, but at least the kids, it does sound like they're singing from harm to me. Was that woman who was angry, was she connected with the choir? She was like a director or a teacher? God, I can't remember, but they were from some school choir. You know, they're really lovely people, but they were they were kind of very hung up on certain things and, and looked at things in a far more American kind of way than a British kind of way, from what I can remember. Right. Um and maybe we we don't say or or do things in the same way, but I think he was really shocked that there was some kind of uh, outrage with it all. In fact, I know he was shocked because uh, I've seen him in situations before, and you know I've never seen him quite like that, where he's he really is quite horrified that this could be something that he never realised, and um, you know it, it was. It all worked out in the end and everybody was happy and everybody was fine about things, but it was a very, it was a very odd morning that it was meant to be a sort of, Oh, can't wait to hear them sing. Cause I went, it was I, at first it was just me and him just went along in a cab. Uh, I thought, Oh yeah, it might be quite fun to shoot this. And for me, I remember, I remember thinking while I'm filming, I'm going, this is going to be one of those bits of film that I really hope it all comes out. And actually you know, the bit that's in the film, it's so short. I mean, that goes on for about 20 minutes. And at first, I just wanted to run the whole 20 minutes because I... Oh, God, I would kill to see the whole 20 minutes, Carrie. I would kill. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but the, the very first... When you cut a film together, I, mean, I did it with an incredible guy called Seb Monk, the editor. Yeah, Seb also worked as an editor on a lot of Gorilla's music videos. He's kind of a zombie flesh eaters guy, right? Absolutely. And he's a top guy. Um, and I remember when we were pulling out the best bits, when you get your assembly edit together, when you're, you're starting out and we worked on it for a while. And then Christmas Eve, I think it was, I said, okay, we got to the end of the last tape and we pulled everything out. And I said, okay, just dump it down onto a DVD or whatever, and or a small hard drive. And I'll have a look over Christmas. 
And then we looked at the timeline and it was running at 19 and a half hours. <laughs> and we just looked at each other. And, mm, we might have a bit of work to do here. Um, but yeah, that, that included the things, you know, that, that whole scene with the choir, I just said, we just can't touch it. It has to be left in its entirety. And, um, you know, it was one of the hardest things having to cut things like that up because. Oh, what a shame. You know, I, I always said, what I would really love to do is release all 300 hours of the footage under a package called Cut It Your Fucking Self. What can we do to make that happen, Carrie? What can <laughs> Hallelujah Monkeys do? Did, is it ransom? Do you need money? What, what do we do? We have a Patreon now. I'd love to make it happen because I, I think it, I think it's so interesting what people pick out of things, but... You know, it's a, it's a it's a hell of a thing, but I'd love to see how many different feature films could be made out of those 300 hours. You know, the hard part is you got to watch it all first, but, um, you know, I, I really like the idea. I still do. But, uh, but yeah, that, that scene, I think, I, think it's, I think it's got something about it. I, th- I think there's something so different I've never really seen in a sort of a music documentary before. Watching Damon... Stand his ground and survive, and I think everyone came out of it happy. And end. also, I think it's probably the most vulnerable he's ever kind of looked on film. He's sort of not—he doesn't have both feet on the ground. He's sort of—he's got to find his balance, and it's such an unusual and maybe unreasonable position to be put in to defend your lyrics to an angry person who, and you need to defend it to them because there's this, there's the chance that they could just walk out and take your choir away. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, she had a point, especially when we saw it written out, you know, and he's going, no, 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 these are not the lyrics. I really believe that they weren't the lyrics. You know, I I know him well enough and I can swear to God that he at no point turned to me and went, blimey, that was close. Oh, with those lyrics. It really wasn't like that. It, It really was not. Hold on. Someone at the door. Hold on. No problem, Carrie. Um, if we end up having to wrap up quickly, what are the what are the most important ones on this list, Trev? I was really interested in knowing if he uh, could remember the number of the exact uh, number of times that uh, he filmed Damon throwing up. <laughs> definitely, I think definitely um, a lot. <laughs> great, great, uh, Carrie. So you get, you gave us all this great footage of the uh, of the sessions from uh, the self titled and Demon Days. Looking uh, ahead to uh, what would become the band's future, though, Plastic Beach would uh, kind of turn out to be like a tumultuous uh, chapter for Gorillas. Do you wish you could have like uh, continued filming and maybe documented the struggles between Gorillas and EMI, and also kind of between Damon and Jamie themselves? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's really weird. You know, you never know when you've got to finish a project. And and the thing is, at the end of Demon Days at the Apollo, there's a cigarette gag that runs through the film. Where he tries to oh, throw it into his that. mouth. It's so good. That. You know, and actually, that moment when he catches it in the dressing room backstage at the Apollo, I just said afterwards, I said, that's the end of the film. How could it not be? And, and the, <laughs> that is the only bit I knew about the film was... We had the ending. I knew that there would be certainly some time before the next album. Could I wait X amount of years? Shouldn't we just try and get something done? Because, you know, sometimes it's important to finish things. And so we decided that, yeah, we should get on with finishing this film. I didn't get the opportunity anyway to move on with the next project because I think Damon and Jamie allowed me as their friend to have access 
that was unrestricted. I think you saw two people in the process of creation that you don't often see over a long period of time. You know, the other thing that signifies time is all the changing haircuts throughout it as well. Um, but, you know, it, to have gone on to do it again, when I think Bananas, on the whole, was a pretty decent attempt at showing how a, a rock and roll band, which, well, let's face it, was meant to be just cartoon characters, survives and lives. It's very hard to know whether you should go for bananas too or whatever and I, I don't kind of like that in a way I think it's unnecessary you know you've shown something yeah look I could I could film Damon and Jamie for the rest of their lives and it would be interesting but at some point you have to go you know what times are changing I need to move on they need to move on and they've had enough of me sticking the camera in their face the whole time and then you know they got into the idea of doing how they want to do things. You know, sometimes you think, oh, God, I really wish that had carried on. But we'd done what we set out to do. And, you know, you look at the distance of time and the length of time between Demon Days and um, Plastic Beach, it's quite a while, you know, to have waited. And also, it gets tiring. Uh, filmmaking on your own with a camera and a microphone in your hand the whole oh, time. Oh, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. You know, and, uh, yeah, look, there's loads of adventures I've missed out on. But, you know... I had seven years of incredible adventures with them. And, you know, sometimes I think, oh, I wish I'd have carried on. But that's life. And, you know, everyone moves on. And actually, maybe it's good that with everything that went on through Plastic Beach as well, that I didn't document it. You know, I mean, we don't have a divine right to, to have access all areas at all times. Right. And especially because at the core of that project is a friendship between two guys. And I mean, I'm sure... Uh, you know, from a scandalistic TMZ on that level, it would have been interesting to watch those two guys have at it. However, that played out. But yeah, like you say, maybe some things are best left to just be private and real life. And it seems like they're doing well together now. Yeah. Let me ask you, did you, did you get, cause I know you've remained friendly with Damon since bananas, uh, has wrapped, especially I know you guys bond over Chelsea, you're both football fans and whatnot. Did you get a sense of Damon's feelings about gorillas kind of shifting during the the long lull between Plastic Beach and humans? Like, was there a time when Damon was like, you know, couldn't couldn't care less about the project and then you watched it over time, him become more excited about it? Or what, what was that like from a, a friendship perspective? No, I mean... I He's so busy. I mean, you look at what he's done since Plastic Beach, you know. Blur have got back together again, you know. I mean... Uh, several several operas and musicals. Exactly. You know, I mean, he, he's not one of those to go, oh, what shall I do tomorrow? Something's always happened. Uh, and suddenly he turned around and said, I've, I've been doing a load of guerrilla stuff again. And, you know, it's kind of... I mean, I knew he was thinking of doing it. Um, and suddenly the stars aligned and he found the time and the space. And I think he found uh, a lot of people that he really fancied working with that would be different than the last three albums, and, and off he went, as he does, you know. But the decision's usually his on the music front that he wants to go and try something. And I guess, you know, Gorillaz... He can do certain things musically that he can't do with other projects that he's got going. It was a surprise when Blur got together again for the first time, but in a lot of ways it wasn't a surprise because Damon just does whatever he feels like musically and stars align or, you know, he 
talks to people like you know with graham and the other guys from blair and suddenly things happen you know and that he never closes any books and i think that's really admirable you know he allows projects to sort of i don't know go into cryogenic quiet time and then suddenly he wakes it up again and you know more power to him we opened up to to some of our listeners on the discord that we were going to be uh talking to you and and overwhelmingly what everybody wants me to ask you is uh so there's the snakes and ladders bit of roots maneuver working on a gorilla song that wasn't released uh by gorillas in the i believe in the bonus materials of bananas carrie and uh everybody wants to know do you remember any other sort of cutting room floor gorillas material that you wish oh i wish that had come out in some some way or another no, I mean, I can't remember. Did the Bees track come out? It did, didn't it? Bill Murray, yes. Yeah, it did. Um, no, not really. Um, there was bits and pieces of stuff, but they, they've all pretty much found their way to somewhere. Not that I can think of, no. Good. Now I did that so nobody can complain. I asked the question. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to know what you think about the, the other two Gorillaz albums that you weren't there to watch their inception. as a, Just as a listener. Just as records, yeah. Yeah. They're interesting as always. You know, there's, there's stuff going on that I, found, I find fascinating, you know, and I, I love the way that they're constructed. Um, you know, I don't listen to them so much because you know i just don't have the time half the time to listen in the same way that i listened to those first two albums because they were so much part of my life for seven years um but yeah i mean i I think they just keep evolving and that's all you can ever hope for from anyone musically is to keep on challenging i just wonder if it's anything like watching clicking through pictures of an ex-girlfriend's like trip to europe or something (laughs) well yeah it kind of is isn't it you know because yeah you know you're you're in on the the um ground floor as it were for a long time and then you know you're you're back out in the car so you know yeah of course it's i look at it a different way completely you know but I still love what he gets up to and what they get up to because they're making stuff that people love. And that's, that's got to be all you can ever want from music is for people to, to love and enjoy what's going on. And I think they keep on doing it. I feel like I've got such a deeper sense of insight into the project. Thank you so much, Kerry. You know, you, you wonder if, if people have seen bananas and, and like it or whatever, because I, you know, part of you thinks, um, Oh, maybe it's disappeared in time, you know, when you make these things. It is priceless, Carrie. I mean, I feel like we barely go an episode of this podcast without referencing it in some way, but but it's just, it's such an important look into that side of the band, because even though things aren't necessarily as closed off or in character or mysterious as they were in phase one, this is not exactly a band where you have that kind of access uh, all the time, so just thank you so much for making that documentary and for putting out all the, the bonus supplemental materials that you put out. Yeah. You know, uh, gorillas is such an unconventional band that functions in such an unconventional way. It's really special for all the fans. I think to have such an, not just such an inside look uh, at the process, but such a lovingly put together presentation of it. That's true. I loved every minute of doing it, even all the pain of editing it um, and things. It was worthwhile. Cause you know, I hope I did, uh, you know, a couple of my friends proud, really. Yeah, and that really comes through in the production. So, really, thank you so much. Just send all of the raw footage to our Google Drive, and we'll make sure that it comes out. (laughs) 
pleasure. I'll, I'll, I'll get on with that now. It should take the next two or three years to upload it all. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gary. Cheers, chaps. Trevor, that was amazing. Wasn't that incredible? It was absolutely surreal. I mean, you could you heard that one part where I just kind of stopped asking questions and gushed about like how weird it was to hear him actually talking to me about this stuff. Yeah, for sure. It was one of my favorite parts of the whole experience where you were just like, "This was so surreal. This was yeah. so surreal. So weird." Yeah, uh, and and how about like? Correct me if I'm wrong, Trevor. I don't think we've ever heard that anywhere before about. Jamie and Damon auditioning singers to play 2D. Oh my god, that's I wish we had kind of I can't believe we didn't impress them on like for any names or anything like that. I yeah. Mean, what do we what do you think? Who might have been in that room? Like who, who could they have possibly gotten? Let's look at the Mercury Prize nominees from around then. There was um I know one of them for some reason. I'm pretty sure uh the dude from Badly Drawn Boy. <laughs> oh my god, get the dude from Badly Drawn because, Boy. Because because what is, what is 2D if not that? <laughs> For sure, he is a Batman drawn boy. <laughs> I mean, I, I I love Jamie Hewlett's artwork, though. I mean, like, don't get me wrong; that's just a joke. Yeah, for Jamie, sure. Jamie, come on the show. Let's see, uh, Manic Street Preachers—they were just becoming a thing. Oh, here's my choice. Here's my choice. What about Richard Ashcroft? He'd just gone solo from The Verve. Yeah, so. that would have been very interesting. Although, I don't know. I don't know what would happen if you put Richard Ashcroft and Murdoch in a band together. Oh, that is kind of scary. Yeah, that's they a good point. They both talk about messiah complexes, except on, like, you know, the other side. <laughs> that's a good point. Oh, here's perfect. Here's perfect. Uh, 2001 Mercury Prize nominee, Super Furry Animals. You could have absolutely had go. Glenn Dillon come in. It would happen eventually. He practically does play 2D on a song, so... Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> maybe that was a nod of the hat. Maybe maybe he did show up for an interview. Who knows? Uh, God, imagine being a fly on that wall. I would love. It, that's now on the growing list of, of gorillas moments I wish I could have been there for, for sure. Mm-hmm. It would have been like, here, sing a little, sing a couple of bars of Clint Eastwood, and they're looking at each other. That sounds okay. <laughs> that sounds okay. Uh, okay, but let me, real quick, I just want to say, Carrie, he, he joked around about that cut at your fucking self edition, Trevor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the semantics of releasing 300 hours of footage will probably make that never happen. But do you think that Carrie should definitely put out the full 20-minute version of that argument between Damon and that woman from the choir. <laughs> God, I can't imagine. Like, like okay, there's the there's the Nixon tapes, and then there's the Damon, Dirty Harry, Apollo argument. Well, I see... Here's what I see. I see a an opportunity. Because Carrie Levy has a book out, Trevor. Right. It's called, um, what is it called? It's called Critical Critters. It comes Critical out uh, in September. It might actually already be out in the UK. I can't remember. But anyway, it's, 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 it's like the third in this series. Uh, he had one called Extinct Boyds, and he had Nextinction. Critical Critters, it's this, it's this, uh, a series, a third in a series of books dedicated to like extinct and endangered animals. So he worked with the cartoonist named Ralph Steadman, and then he writes the books. Carrie writes the books, um, and together they are the Gonzovationists. Yeah, imagine if Hunter S. Thompson made uh, like a series of books about saving the animals. It's, you kind of have an idea of this, right? It sounds about right. Here's what I say: you do. 
buy a copy of Critical Critters, screenshot your Amazon order confirmation page, and then tweet at Carrie Levy, at Carrie Levy, saying, please release the 20-minute version. It might work. It might work. It, it might, might work. work. I'd love we, to we see it. We might have gotten, we might have gotten Lonely Man out of Dan. We could get this, too. We could get this, too. I would kill to see that. Also, I would kill to see something that doesn't exist, which is a picture of Carrie Levy <laughs> wearing right. proofs d12 chain god <laughs> if only we had camera phones back then yeah if anybody ever discovers time travel before you kill hitler please go back to that night and take a picture of gary levy wearing that that necklace <laughs> so anyway either way if you don't give a crap about that 20 minute uh version of that scene first of all who are you still check out critical critters uh seems like a really awesome book can't wait for it to come out Carrie, thank you again so much for coming on the show. If you're listening, uh, that was just what a singular experience, Trevor. What an amazing feel free experience. To, feel free to come back anytime. Any old time at all. Hey, uh, Trevor, should I do that thing where I say all the places that people can find us? Yeah, because somehow I managed to forget every week. Oh, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook and Tumblr and Amino, and uh, you can join our Discord at discord.me slash monkeys with a Z. You can send us an email to hallelujahmonkeys at gmail.com, or you can give to our Patreon, patreon.com slash hallelujahmonkeys. Thank you again to those of you who have done that. We really, really appreciate you. You've gotten really good at saying that really fast. Yeah, well, you got to plow through it. I used to be like, go to facebook.com forward slash hallelujah but you know people can google hallelujah monkeys facebook and find that thing people don't even really listen to the last like 20 seconds of podcast anyways right especially because we don't do any kind of fun cool final send-off at the end well here's the thing if you don't listen to the whole thing and you're on itunes you'll have that little blue half circle can you live with that half circle i hate that gotta get rid of the half circle that's why you're like oh wrap this thing up guys i have a half circle so should we just sign off then (laughs) yeah let's do it okay cool so um until next week i've been trevor ickraft i've been dylan flynn and remember, boys and girls, Satan loves you!